Welcome to Religion Unplugged podcast. This is Paul Gladder, executive editor of Religion Unplugged. And today on our podcast, we have a guest named Marcus Speaker calling in here from Germany, from near Leipzig, Germany. Um, to introduce Dr. Speaker, he is a doctor, by the way. Uh, his main job is working as a chief reporter at First German Television called AR Day. So you, this book title, it is, uh, you know, just a small undertaking, right? It, Jesus, a world history. And it's, it's a thousand pages. Tell us first, why did you write this book? How did it come about? Well, the original idea is that my name is Marcus, uh, as you said, and it's like, like Mark, the author of the presumably first gospel, and I'm a pastor's kid. And uh, so I wanted to write a biography about Jesus. And actually what triggered this idea was seven years ago, uh, the book uh, Zealots by um, uh, an American reporter, Reza Aslan. And the book that um, portrays Jesus as just the guy who wanted to have some political changes and who tried to topple the regime, the Roman regime, and who was uh, killed and who was unsuccessful, but still became famous. And the book was pretty successful in, in Germany too. And a lot of people said, well, that's pretty much what we know about Jesus, that he wasn't the savior, but just the political figure. And, you know, I was kind of anxious to tell a different story. And of course, I know there were a lot of um, Jesus biographies around, but maybe not written by a by a guy who is, wants to look at the sources and, and what we really know. So that's how it started. And I wanted to write a very lean book, maybe 100, 200 pages. But then I thought, you know, you cannot talk about Jesus without talking about his legacy and without talking about what led up to him coming into this world. And so I ended up with a thousand pages. Now talk to us, explain to us, Marcus, how uh, you brought a journalist lens and also some a historian lens in your methodology here to the research and the writing of this book. If you could explain a little more how that worked. Well, it's pretty simple. Um, when I'm, as a journalist, I go to India or Afghanistan and something's happened. You talk to people, you try to read everything that's online. So you just want to get the facts. Uh, so what do you do with Jesus, who you can talk to and you can't go back in time? Uh, all you can do is look at all the sources that are available, not just the Christian ones, but everything that Roman authors had written at the time and Jewish authors. And then you look at, you know, a lot of books that have been written about Jesus uh, in the last hundred years. And, you know, I was amazed to see how how much good new research is coming out of the seminaries in America and in Europe. And a lot of them deal with small details. And there are not that many people who try to bring it all together. So as a journalist, I just, you know, um, jump into, you know, the whole mass of literature and I try to get the facts and to this non-scientific approach is a big help because I'm not asking what do my colleagues think and, you know, and I'm happy with maybe 98 or 95 percent of plausibility so it doesn't have to be so perfect that i get a doctorate for it so i have some room to maneuver and i think that was pretty that was okay for the book so there's a lot of you know things that 
where maybe there's some speculation and I'm happy to do it. And uh, I think readers like it. Like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I found it really impressive looking at the um, the source list that you had sent that, that it was translated to English. Just, I mean, the, the kinds of books you were reading and sourcing into this, your book, I think is really fascinating and impressive and um, gives someone uh, a German, and hopefully an English reader, if it's translated, a reason to to read this, to get a sense of, uh, of history. As you seem to put Jesus at the central point of this, of, of world history. Um, had you seen any um, attempt at that kind of world history before? No, not yet, I think, because um, usually what you do is write a book about, you know, early Christianity and about Jesus, and then there's church history. Um, and um, to bring it together and also to talk about, um, you know, human history, the beginning of uh, human civilization, you know, going all the way back to the Stone Ages and then to what the, what the Indians and the Chinese thought about the, the heavens and the gods and what the Greek and Roman authors thought. I think people have been reluctant so far to make one big book out of it. And, you know, I was kind of surprised to learn what, you know, scholars probably know at the same time that Jesus uh, was around and the apostles were around. And then you can see kind of you know, like there's parallels um, in, you know, in the sense that the Romans, they talk about, you know, what is love like and what does self-sacrifice mean and how do we know there is a God? And, you know, a couple of years before Jesus comes into this world, there's a book that Cicero, the the Roman thinker wrote on the nature of the gods. And he's like hosting a party where people are this, you know, having a discussion. Is there a God? How many? What do we know about them? And they end up at the conclusion there is probably a God, probably only one God, and it's got to be an almighty and good God. But this God has not revealed himself yet. And this is 40 years BC, 45 years BC. And I was, you know, I thought it was interesting that the Romans were at a, you know, ending up at a point that we are, a lot of people, contemporary people are at, where they think, yeah, probably there is a God, but who is this God? And, you know, Jesus was kind of the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you, you talk about, uh, you know, your father was a pastor, as was mine. Um, and so obviously you grew up knowing about Jesus of the Bible, um, but and, and as you embarked, though, on seven years of this deep reading and writing, you know, was there anything that surprised you in particular most about your from this research? I think, you know, what I was really surprised about is was was the effect that Jesus had on human history. Um, that all the pretty much every innovation when it comes to humanitarian efforts, the idea of um, religious tolerance and, you know, public schooling and like charity for poor people and the idea that you're helping complete strangers. So if you look at the last 2000 years, people kind of forget how, how much of this they owe to, um, you know, preaching of loving your neighbor, but also like every human being is, is, has been created by God and is loved by him. I think that made a big difference. And so 
I think for like almost four tenths or one third of the book is just, you know, the last 2000 years and how Christianity has transformed the world. And I was really excited to learn about it. Also reading about Jesus uh, and finding out just what a wonderful human being he was. If you compare him to anybody else at the time, like his easygoing nature, for example, his way of storytelling, uh, his way of just loving people and loving to hang out with them, of, of having barbecues, of loving to eat and just, you know, leading his disciples. It must have been a tough walk, always going to Jerusalem and you have to have this, you have this, you know, climb uphill. And I, you know, all these things I like and there's actually nothing about Jesus that you cannot like. And I thought that was kind of amazing. Yeah, one, one uh, chapter or section title that caught my eye was titled The Agape Economy. Giving is more lucrative than taking. And that one seemed to be relevant to today's world or some kind of compelling idea, which I think you were getting at a little bit. But is that what that, you know, does the chapter get into anything else uh, related to this? Yeah, I think the agape economy, um, it just applies to Jesus' teaching saying, you know, the one who gives and the one who loves is the winner, actually. At the end of the day, when we will face God uh, in eternity, that will be the deciding thing if we have loved on earth. And also already on earth, as we know from the happiness research, people who have good relationships and who invest in other people are happier than the takers. You know, the people are just absorbing. And the agape economy uh, is just not, it's not only horizontally, um, you know, people relating to each other, but like in the beginning, it's the vertical thing. So God investing himself uh, into our lives. So I think that's what I mean that God is giving us a kind of hope that enables us to, to love each other without having the feeling that we waste our love. You know, nothing is wasted that you give to other people. That's Jesus' message. And I think that's very relevant for today. But, and that's something that poets like Dostoevsky talked about. If you don't believe in a hereafter, if you don't believe in a bigger meaning and a God, um, who has the last word, then, of course, it seems kind of self-destructive just to give and not to, you know, ask for, for stuff back. So that's not very popular in this day and age. So I think focusing on Jesus and his message can help us to be less uh, self-centered. But even me as a Christian, I find it very hard every day. Of course, I also, I see it with the book. I'm so happy if somebody on Amazon gives me a good review and if I get a, got a lot of likes on Facebook that I don't have the energy to give compliments to other people anymore. So I have to, you know, focus on Jesus every day to keep that in mind. Yeah. Another, uh, yeah, another interesting chapter, I think, to modern times was I saw titled Priscilla, Junia, uh, Phoebe, Lydia, Women's Liberation. Tell us about that, what that what that's about. Why Jesus was famous for hanging around with women a lot. And actually, if you have the story of Mary and Martha, the, the, the women um, get the better lines in, in, in the gospel. They are presented much more favorably than the guys. Like it's the women who are there at the beginning with Mary and with Elizabeth. And they're at the cross and they're at the, at the grave. So it's always the women. Who, who are the most loyal. And if you look at the story of, of the apostles, like it's women that play a very vital role 
now you know a lot of theologians are writing uh, about Phoebe that she was the one carrying the letter to the Romans so Paul entrusted her with this most important of all of his letters and I think um, due to the patriarchal nature of, of society in the last 2000 years that got kind of lost and I think we need to rediscover the importance of women in the early church and in church history and to be happy about it because that's also unique. You don't have it in any other religion. And up to this very day, Christianity is very popular with women. Like, and and uh, so there's a certain appeal. Um, and I, I was very glad to find out that uh, Jesus was ahead of his time in this respect too. Yeah, and it to me, it, it um, right now, you know, in the U.S., we're going through a lot of um, rethinking on racial equality and justice. And when when you have a majority religion, what things get forgotten? And you know, looking through your your table of contents in the initial chapter, I, I it was interesting to see that how you highlight the, the the ups and downs, the roller coaster of Christianity and history from minority and majority faiths. And to me, that's something that those a lot of readers maybe in Germany and the United States kind of forget whether they're Christians or not Christians. They just sort of maybe forget that history. But And why is it maybe relevant for us to uh, understand that more? It's, it's very, very relevant. Uh, we, we must keep in mind the first converts uh, out of, you know, who didn't come from the Jewish community to Christianity was this African eunuch. So you have a guy from Africa, like different color, uh, sexually a minority, and he was the first convert. And the, the Bible, you know, you know, just says like it is. And I think what happened in the last 2,000 years is uh, that Christians had to find out that they cannot deal with power. Um, and Christians thought if they have the Holy Spirit and if they read the Bible, they are immune to uh, the appeal, the toxic appeal of power and that it makes you able to oppress and to just have your will. And Jesus actually is very critical of people who are commanding other people. And he tells his disciples, you shall not rule above each other. You shall love each other. And Christians forgot that. So the lesson the last, that we had to learn the last 2,000 years, Christians, like anybody else, cannot deal with too much power, cannot deal with wealth, cannot deal with fame and success. And we see it every day with some pastors who are not, you know, who fall. And, you know, it's, it's just like this. Christians are not immune to it. Um, and, of course, Christians, there were people who called themselves Christians who committed terrible crimes. And there isn't any crime almost that Christians haven't um, committed. But, and I think that sets Christianity apart from other movements and religions and ideologies, there's always the counter movement. So you have the Crusades and you have Francis of Assisi. And uh, you have like all the popes of the Renaissance age, uh, age with the debauchery, and then you have a Luther. And then you have the so-called German Christians under Hitler who are all pro-fascism, but you have Bonhoeffer and you have the martyrs. And in the end, it was the good guys who prevailed. So today, nobody knows any name of any crusader anymore, but everybody knows, you know, Francis of Assisi and, and Hildegard of Bingen and all these wonderful people from the Middle Ages. 
And nobody knows a German Christian from the 40s or 30s. Everybody knows Bonhoeffer. So I think that tells you a lot about the truthfulness of the Christian um, faith that in the long run, it's the good stuff that sticks. Hmm. Well, that's a good way to put it. Um, well, you, uh, another chapter title that I wanted to ask you about that caught my eye was was called Celebrations, Why Champagne is a Christian Drink. Could you tell us the answer to that? You know, champagne was invented by a monk. That's where it comes from. Dom Perignon, that was the, the, the guy's name. And he came up with the famous French champagne in the, I think, in the 17th century. But of course, it goes back all, you know, to Jesus and his first miracle, according to the Gospel of John, uh, the wedding at Cana. And I think it was, it's really telling that Jesus, his first miracle was at a wedding. So obviously, he thinks weddings, love, it's important. And that he gives people there, like, you know, a lot of good stuff to drink, like better wine than the Romans had. And at the time, Romans had a lot of good wine, and they paid fortunes for the best wine. And just to think that Jesus in Galilee, he just invites people to this feast and parties with them. And actually, when he talks about heaven, he's not talking about people sitting on clouds and, you know, playing the flute. He's talking about partying all the time, about weddings. And everybody who's been to a wedding uh, in the near or far east, you know, they go on for days, and it's all like pure joy and affluence. And that is what God, Jesus is thinking about when he thinks about the good stuff. It's celebrations. And I think also when I look at movies uh, that picture Christians from the 19th century, it's all people, you know, dressed in black and with gloomy, gloomy eyes and very solemn and singing depressive hymns. And uh, the opposite is true for Jesus, obviously. There were two other things that, that I wanted to ask about the apocalyptic expectations around the turn of the times. Could you explain that? It sounded like something interesting. Yeah, I mean, when we read about Gabriel coming to, uh, to Mary, like the archangel, we're thinking there's this stranger, uh, you know, coming to her house and she has no clue. But actually we know that at the time there were a lot of apocalyptic writings by Jews, some of them even written pretty much at, exactly at the time that Jesus was born, there were, were the archangels, Gabriel and Michael were like the, 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 the main figures of the celestial realm, uh, realm. And they would come down and lead the, the godly army and defeat the powers of darkness. So there was a lot of expectations at the time that God finally would put an end to um, the destruction that the Romans were perpetrating. And, um, of course, what Jesus then brought was different from what people were expecting, but the expectation was there. Well, you know what? I mean, I, uh, I do hope it, uh, the book comes into English, and I, I think a lot of people will be interested in it. And um, if you read German, go buy a copy of Marcus Speaker's book, Jesus, A World History, because it, it's a, it seems to me, Marcus, it's the kind of book that it's like a peg to which you can hang a lot of knowledge and understanding and build more. Um, you, you, you take us on a journey through your library and interlibrary loans uh, about uh, uh, new ways to think about and understand Jesus. I hope so. I mean, we're entering the, the, the Christmas season and uh, all I want to say is that dealing with Jesus um, in a more detailed way 
than I had before when it comes to historical insight has just increased my sense of wonder and amazement and just joy. So maybe, you know, 10 years ago when I was thinking of Jesus, he was more like a character in this big salvation story. And now he's just this wonderful, colossal Lord, friend, savior that I just like to a, to a degree that I hadn't before and that I'm really looking forward now to see one day. Yeah, well, I think it's a great, uh, again, a great, great, a great thought, as you say, as we head to the Christmas season, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to think about. So we thank you for being here with us today um, on Religion Unplugged podcast, Marcus. Thanks for having me, Paul. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.